thank you both so much. Um, so you will notice now that you have your cards and your pens, and if you would like to ask a question, this would be a good time to write something down over the next few minutes, and then we will open up the conversation and we will ask your questions as well. So I'm stunned. <laughs> I mean, it's really am amazing to hear both of you speak, and the scope of interconnectivity is <coughs> truly remarkable. I, I happen to be reporting right now on a group of Syrian artists uh, who are a network, so I've been, I've been using data to follow them as a network. Most of them, all of them have left Syria at this point, but one of them said to me the other day, how do you ever learn to paint if you'd see Picasso in black and white, right? That when he was in Syria, all the reproductions were in black and white. So there are spaces where there is a, where the humanities are flourishing uh, because of networks, but those spaces are obviously few and far between. So thinking of this moment, we're looking in a terrible mirror, um, a terrible mirror. And I, I wanted to return to some of these larger questions about basically the human spirit and human consciousness. So how can we look in that mirror and have it not be so terrible? I mean, Stephen, I'm thinking about your equipment for living mm -hmm. and what we can carry with us, obviously empathy. Um, critical thinking, but how, especially in terms of where we're sitting now, especially in terms of education, how do we inject into this network the tools that the next generation needs to, to live a life of value? Small question. Mm. <laughs> I don't uh, obviously have uh, an answer, uh, adequate answer. I think we are not doing well uh, in terms of uh, our culture's ability to um, not only to manage chaos, but as you say, to to um, provide uh, tools for uh, for the generation that is. Uh, basically generation not represented in our room at the moment, younger <laughs> even than you, Eliza, mm -hmm. that, that uh, is, is, you know, has been born into this uh, world. I think of my own, uh, my own children and uh, grandchildren who inhabit a world in which, and then I sit and look, as we all do, at people who normally would have been interacting in a different way on the subway, or mm -hmm. and there, uh, Manuel tells me that they're not, in fact, alienated. That they're actually, in some way, being sociable. But to me, it looks like they're in a weird form of of isolation, one from another, in a what ordinarily would have been a social space. Uh, and I think that our educational system isn't addressing this very well, but I'm not sure I know the answer. My, or rather, my answers are rather um, belong to a different generation in which we didn't think of ourselves principally as communication and information entities, uh, but as something else, something that, that um, uh, beings that weren't defined uh, by the amount of, of uh, digitized uh, information. And I think there is aspects of, if I think of, of my own children, I mean, there are aspects of their culture that are incredibly intense, the musical culture, for mm. example, that they uh, inhabit, uh, and that maybe there, uh, there are ways in which, th that combine, actually, in some ways that I can recognize uh, poetry and art in a, in a um, uh, in a clearly powerful communication experience. But I don't, I don't understand it very fully any longer. I feel like John Donne in the anniversaries that uh, uh, the basic principles by which people like us organized our lives are under considerable threat. Mm. And uh, the best that I feel I can do is to hold on to and try to reinforce uh, the, the, the things that uh, 
our inheritance, in effect, what we've received from our past that we care about and that we absolutely must pass along to the next generation to find ways of, of communicating it to the next generation. And that includes highly traditional materials. That includes uh, Cervantes and Shakespeare. That includes uh, the, the art, painting, and so forth that I, I deeply care about and that seems to me to have made us human. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, two points. Uh, on, on this comment quickly. Uh, one is um, there is a tremendous gap between, let's say, the millennials mm -hmm. and the rest of the world. I'm not talking simply young people. I'm talking about the millennials. Um, and the only thing we know about the future, the only thing is that the future is made by the people who are young today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the only <laughs> thing, for sure. Um, and, and it's not true that, as people say, that, well, when they will be 50, they will be like us, being 50 or 60 or 70. Uh -uh. No, because the process of being and becoming transforms yourself as Heidelberg, Berlin, and everything. So uh, the, there is a tremendous gap, and I can give an empirical illustration. We did systematic studies comparing secondary education and the, the, the impacts of technologies, secondary education in California and in Catalonia. Um, and they have exactly the same dropout rate, 32% of secondary education. Main reason for this dropout rate, main reason, they are bored in class. Hmm. Because, and I think Shakespeare is wonderful, but is the way in, in which they are taught, the way in which the pedagogical relationship is established, it's a complete different level of what they experience all the time their wall of sounds, images, uh, horizontal communication has nothing to do with what is transmitted in the classroom. And not, among other things, because the teachers are not able to, because not, they're not only technically, but psychologically able to handle that. So that's the first fact. We are creating a tremendous gap, and in fact, uh, in some advanced cases, like in Finland, for instance, they are trying to do the opposite, that the, the children, teach the teachers how to use certain tools and how to connect so that then they can transform a different form of uh, communication about traditional matters that ultimately they like. Second, um, something that relates to what, how we construct behavior, which is, I will come exactly to the point that you mentioned about music, art, etc., as a form, as a much more powerful form or direct communication. As much as I understand, I'm interested, but I totally ignorant at the same time about neuroscience. But I, I work very closely to, with my friend Antonio Damasio, which is one of the top neuroscientists in the world. And he has clinically and, and theoretically shown that the key determinant of human behavior is not reasoning. It's feelings determined by emotions. Neurobiologically, you probably, uh, can say something about that. Um, therefore, emotions drive us. Consequences of emotions, at, at least a couple of important consequences. For instance, in political terms and in communication terms, people don't ever look at informations that they know they may disagree. Mm -hmm. The people who, who watch Fox News don't listen to NPR and vice versa. People don't look for information. They look for confirmation. That's an empirical fact, uh, okay? And therefore, it's separate universes. Okay? But then where the people connect is at the level of the emotions. And that's art, that's music, that Shakespeare as literature rather than as a, a classroom subject. There, uh, universally, the young people, but not only the young people. Art is a human language of universal communication as it is music, as it is all the things, everything that goes directly to the emotion. So my hope is that while we try find to uh, manage the chaos in the information and communication processes, artists and musicians will save us. I heard a stunning statistic this morning from a researcher at Columbia who is working with children about the role of spirit in children's lives and essentially value. Um, 
whether the you know, empathy, um, basically what we would define as humanism. And the statistic was that children who are not raised in, with the practice of a spirit, whether that's humanism and reading Shakespeare or Lakota tradition, doesn't really matter, are 80% more likely uh, to become addicted to drugs. And I couldn't, I just thought that was a remarkable statistic. And so as we, as we sort of get down onto, Manuel, I, I wonder in your empirical research, when you look and see what has been effective, of course, we can generally say music, art, but in, in injecting positive value into the network, what, what does that look like? How do you see that happen? By examples, examples of goodness of, and of practices. Look, and, and other, another information. Um, as we were commenting before, uh, governments, and institutions, political parties, uh, institutions of all kinds in the world, uh, between, depending on countries, between 60% and 80% of people don't believe in them. They're totally delegitimized. It's a total crisis of legitimacy. But uh, NGOs and all kinds of organizations doing good directly, not through ideology, not through institutions, but trying to help the children, trying to help the poor, trying to save the environment. Uh, this is incredibly popular. And people mobilize, they give money, they are generous. So in, in other words, when you, there is a connection to actually take care of one particular issue that affects the human emotion in terms of the face of a child or a devastation from a hurricane, etc. people suddenly, the same people who are bitter and, and fight each other, suddenly they have the other reflection, the other element of, of humanity, because we are both, mm -hmm. we are angels and demons. Mm -hmm. So how to activate one or another usually goes more through emotion and examples of what could be done. Isn't there a peculiar tension, Manuel, between what you've just said and what you proposed in your talk, which was that the way to counter the negative uh, work here was through the discipline of the humanities, the social sciences, doing rational analysis. Is, uh, the, that academic scientific work presumably is uh, not work that addresses the emotions. But, no, absolutely. And, absolutely right. But, but we have to understand the mechanism through which emotions are triggered in order to trigger the emotion. That's my point. Mm -hmm. So uh, we, we, we cannot do the emotions. The emotions is people, but we can understand the emotional mechanism and the institutional and exemplary mechanism through which things are triggered or not triggered. Mm -hmm. So it's knowledge applied to push towards certain positive aspects. The positive aspects are normative, by the way. Mm -hmm. What is true for you or for me is not necessarily for everybody. Stephen, when you are addressing some of these problems in the classroom, I mean, has the idea, has the prevalence of the internet, has the network society changed the ways in which you teach at all? I mean, I'm in an unusually privileged position, so I'm not on the front lines of what uh, we're talking about here. My students, uh, it's true, have a, have a different relation to media, but uh, they're incredibly eager. My, the students who clamor to, to, to uh, read uh, Homer or Shakespeare or Dante oh, yeah. uh, are, are eager to get something and they, they, they feel, but I understand they don't represent the, the population at large, that, that this is an, uh, uh, something that will, will uh, be an immense good for them. So and they are inspired uh, by you. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think no. they come with this already. They are emotionally uh, connected. But it's you. also the, I don't think it's only a matter of emotions. I actually think that it's also they see something cognitively important about the arts that they uh, want to uh, uh, to engage with. And I guess I I would say that that um, the only thing is I protect myself. I don't allow my students to, to use their computers in class. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I know if I have my computer open during a department meeting, I also will get distracted and uh, start uh, receiving emails. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, then say, I try in, in my classes as we try at home, not to have the 
to be, how should we say, enslaved to the, to the media, not to have, it, have the, the, the uh, phone, our phones on the table at dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, it's my wife who insists <laughs> upon that. But I accept this insistence. It's an extremely good one, even though I find it difficult during certain baseball games mm -hmm. uh, to forego this, uh, this need for constant information. But I, I, what's important, it seems to me, but Manuel, you may, may be impossible, you may think it's absurd anyway, is try to create for one's children, in any case, spaces in which we're not completely in the grip of this thing. Oh, yeah. if, but if, the, if the spaces they in it, which okay. we escape uh, from its grip, just uh, uh, into other kinds of social Absolutely. Uh, communication. Not even the content, it's just the practice of constant, constant media that's a problem. Look, but for instance, I do the opposite in my class, of course, and not by ideology, uh, <laughs> that um, I encourage my students, no, I don't have to encourage, I just have to allow, to, to be connected to, to, to the internet, mainly. The computer is not a computer, it's the internet, okay? It's a, it's a communication device, right. not an information device. Otherwise, it's a typewriter. Yes. Um, and I do that uh, for two reasons. First, to have a check on, my, on the interest of what I do. If a students are interested in what we say, they will pay attention yeah. while doing five other things because that's the way. Right, okay? right, okay? right, right. Uh, and now we, we actually have now evidence about what happened. People say, well, they lose focus, yes. But at the same time, they win in recombining capacity. I don't believe it, Manuel. What? I don't believe it. What? I don't believe, yeah. I mean, I believe you're, that people have come up with this data, but I don't believe that you can read the wings of the dove or listen to uh, a Bach cantata and do five other things. You make connections when you have different signals coming to your brain and then you can make the connections. You, can, you have to sequence the signals, you will much more difficult uh, to, to know the connection. But the, the other thing and the important thing for me to allow them to go into Google all the time is for them to check me, to check me out. And they, <laughs> they constantly go, oh wait a second, what you say was more or less five years ago, but now it's this and this and this and this. Your data are completely obsolete. Here, you're completely wrong. It's fantastic. The class is interactive, and I get my learning through the class. Mm -hmm. Rather than transmitting information, I learn information, and I stimulate interaction. I think this is richer than simply reproducing what we already know in terms of our books, and we are only one book ahead of the student. That's all we have. No, I think, I mean, there's no question that last night I was using my phone and a projector to speak to a journalist writing about Kashmir in New York so that my students could see this actually very, we had a Syrian activist on not long ago. My students were watching him, and he was under airstrikes. He was underground, and he was smoking. And he did what he does, which is just throw a cigarette in the corner of the room. Who cares? He's under a bomb strike. And all my students gasped. <gasps> and he looked around and realized he went and got his cigarette. But I mean, <laughs> that kind of immediacy in the classroom has a value like none other also. Um, but I we guess- We have to find ways to connect to but the see, I don't know that Stevens- Or we are lost. Not they are lost, we are yeah. lost. Mm. I don't know that Stevens students are looking for something so different than most young people are looking for on the internet. I think there's a looking for information, of course, but I think the search for meaning that, it, that is intrinsic to adolescent life happens across platforms, mm -hmm. right? So how do we gear people toward value positive information? I mean, that's sort of, that's what I keep returning to. I wanna make sure that we have time to ask people, okay, so we have a few more minutes that we will be talking here and then if your questions are prepared. If you do not have a question, I've heard you're well, not going to have a glass of wine. Open up to the question. Yeah, let's, yeah. Let's, okay, let's we ready? Okay, so terrific. Looks like a written exam. <laughs> yeah. You see, with WhatsApp, would already be received. <laughs> we thought if any audience would ask appropriate and pressing questions, it would be this audience, so.
And the winner is? <laughs> Darwin. Darwin believed in the power of language to solve problems of human coexistence. Would you comment on this? I, in, in, it's true that, that uh, Darwin was profoundly, uh, I mean, was not accidentally uh, a figure from the world of Dickens and George Eliot. The same year that Darwin published The Descent of Man, I think, is the year that George Eliot published Middlemarch. Hmm. Uh, so they live in an uh, intersecting world of, uh, uh, that was dominated by the belief in, in uh, linguistic communication, but, uh, but Darwin's ast astonishing work depended up upon uh, the accumulation of facts and also the analysis, uh, I'm thinking of Robin Kelsey here also, of of photographs of, of for example, the amazing work on facial expressions, hmm. uh, which in some ways anticipates the uh, work that was done outside of language by the analysis of gesture and, and face. Yeah. So he's already moving into a world in which he's collected uh, huge amounts of data and processing it. And then he has this strange moment in which he realizes that <coughs> something has, has atrophied in him uh, in the course of the work. I have to say I really identified having grinding, the grinding mind riding the Acela <laughs> up here. I thought, oh, it's too familiar. That's interesting. Okay, Stephen, this is specifically addressed to you. Is your argument about lack of progress in humanities specific to the aesthetics of works? Is the argument about, about the lack of progress specific in aesthetics? I think there are clearly areas in which there is progress. And we live longer for a reason now uh, than we did several generations ago, and that's because there's been clear progress in, in medical treatment uh, for us, and that uh, is keeping us uh, going. And there's been progress in, in other areas. I mean, not, as I said, not uh, simply medical. I do think, and it's a problem for me, because I'm, supposedly a new historicist. I'm interested in, in context, as I am, in how uh, works of art come out of particular historical context. But I think that many of the works of art that matter most to us, probably all of them, depend upon extremely long-term and unprogressive nature of human life, grappling with uh, certain fundamental experiences of, of, uh, of desire and fear longing and labor and death that have uh, that were already present in the species yeah. that left their paintings on the walls 35,000 years ago so one of the reasons that the, that art is so strange is uh, and wonderful is that it's it, it it's precisely not a world in which the google search will tell you you're way out of date uh, it, it continues so well, it will say you're on, on target <laughs> yeah exactly Mm. But uh, I, I concur yeah, yeah. With, with this answer. But one 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 thing that uh, comes to mind is that I, I think it's uh, scientifically proven that the idea of progress is a total myth <laughs> and an ideology. Uh, that the same the idea of non-progress. This is this is all about linearity of time and human existence, and it's not such a thing. If just in normative terms, progress. 20th century, two mega wars with hundreds of millions killed and countries destroyed, barbarism, concentration camps, extermination. Come on. In comparison to human history, the worst, most destructive, less human century has been the 20th century. And we are entering the 21st with not great prospects. Um, so uh, we, we don't know still how to control the possibility of uh, widespread terrorism simply with a car mm -hmm. or a knife. Mm -hmm. And the, the major confrontation to millions and millions, actually billions of people, simply because we have different religions and different forms of culture and history. No, I don't think there is progress in humankind. I think there is progress in knowledge about things, 
but the way we use this knowledge, the way our current president uses knowledge is absolutely devastating because he may use knowledge to destroy people's lives and to destroy the world. And the same thing everywhere. Uh, so uh, let, let's step back and decide that there is no such a thing in normative terms as human progress, which is what it is, is progress of uh, technology, science, development, there absolutely. But my key point is that we have an extraordinary advance in technological, scientific knowledge terms and a complete backwardness in moral, ethical, and um, ability to live together as humans. And the contradiction between these two processes is explosive. What about on an individual level, Manuel? If there there's, was? What about on an individual level? So there's no such thing as collective progress uh, as, a, as an entity, right? How about moral progress in individual terms in the course of a lifetime? Is that also a myth? No. There are, there can be major changes that normative, again, because we have to be normative to judge everything. Uh, uh, because in, in scientific terms, you don't have to be normative. You have to analyze what it is. Um, but there are some extraordinary things that have happened, linked mainly not to technology, not to knowledge, but to what I call social movements. Is people, collective action, challenging the dominant values of society. Two most important. Feminist movement has changed the way women think about themselves. And this has changed everything literally everything. This is a major transformation, and this is the last 50 years, even if there was feminism throughout history in many ways, but usually they ended up burned uh, at the stick. Uh, so, but this has been a major transformation. The environmental consciousness is a major transformation. Most people in the world today are conscious about the ecosystem, about the fact that uh, the planet could live very well without us but we may not be living in the, in the planet because we destroy the, the, the capacity to live in this, in this planet if we continue doing what, the, what it is. But here I go. We have progress of human consciousness about the environmental catastrophes, and we have institutions that block what we could do with knowledge to prevent these catastrophes. This is my double thing. It's uh, progress in values, progress in knowledge, and backwardness in institutions. Mm. Mm. Stephen, I was thinking after Darwin, that same idea of synthesizing data coming from multiple sources. Another wonderful example would be Rachel Carson. You know, when she wrote Silent Spring, she was writing that partly mm -hmm. in response. She was herself a biologist at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. Yeah. yeah, but she was receiving information from readers about their direct experiences of DDT and other pesticides. Um, yeah, very interesting. Okay, so this is one I wouldn't have dared to ask, but somebody else did. Okay, so how much of this is false nostalgia? Most students have always suffered through Shakespeare. Most people of any generation have not been appreciative of higher arts. Is this just that elites are distracted, so now we notice it? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, I'm, one who's, I'm someone who suffered through Shakespeare at, 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 in, in my first encounter, junior high school, with As You Like It, which I despised. Uh, but I would have said that, that but you can, we could certainly have a conversation about this, that uh, there has been a, um, it may be not an increase in suffering, uh, but there has been a loss of confidence that there are certain things that uh, one collectively uh, can respect or trust as a culture. Uh, that is to say, it goes along with, with, with the peculiar way in which, they, they, when I was younger, the, they were, were certainly not impeccable, but they were a set of of uh, television networks that provided the news. There was a set of newspapers that when we lied to uh, provide the news, there were a set of works that were more or less uh, agreed to represent some kind of collective value. And I think that there's been 
uh, a significant erosion of that collective idea that we have these no, exactly. things that we can rely on. And as Manuel said, there's also certain advantages to that loss of, of agreement. So it's not only, we don't have to be entirely nostalgic about it, but there have also been, I think, significant downsides to this. So it's not a question of whether you find, as you like it, more or less interesting uh, now than you would have, but you, the, the trust, I had some doubts about Miss Gillespie, who assigned As You Like It years ago, but I assumed somehow she uh, represented an institution that had uh, made a, uh, a, a decision as to what actually was valuable. And I, the fact that I didn't get it was just part of a local uh, distress on the way to a, a uh, what I took to be an education that I trusted. And I think that, that there's a general uh, uh, diminishing, not universally, but there is a uh, diminishing of that confidence that there is uh, a, a set of, of values and social values, hum, uh, values in the humanities, values in politics that we can genuinely all speak to. Mm -hmm. You can be very nostalgic, but the fact is there's been a collapse of traditional values and truth mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, and trust. Definitely. At the same time, I, I think there hasn't been a loss of desire on the part of young people to pursue those values. So the question is, if the desire is there, how can we, how can we, how can we respond to it more effectively? Mm -hmm. Okay, Manuel, this and is who for is you. the we. <laughs> those of us who properly follow values and can teach properly. <laughs> no, those of us who feel some impetus to do so, yeah. right? I mean, that's, if it is an individual fractured world, and if you are saying that social movements, grassroots social movements flourish in this network society, then the onus is on each of us to participate in a value-based network society or else it's not going to happen. But there are social movements which are very progressive and, and social movements that are very reactionary. And there are social movements in the sense that they mobilize collectively to change the values of society, to reimpose, for instance, patriarchalism or racism. You know, yeah. I, I did my little study of the actual voting patterns in the Trump election. Mm -hmm. The most important factor mm -hmm. was whites against Blacks, mm -hmm. the most statistically significant. Uh, Gunnar Mildell in 1948 wrote The American Dilemma. The American Dilemma is still there and is the decisive force in our society. Have you only among the white population, only educated women, only college educated women voted against Trump. Men, educated and non-educated, voted for Trump. Of course, they, uh, they less educated massively, and the rural areas voted for Trump, um, and and young and women, non-educated women, voted 59% for Trump. Okay, so again, and it was a vote against the notion of racial equality, minorities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not patriarchalism, because women voted also. White women voted. It was a white backlash. There's Not the white working class, the white. So we are, in, 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 in that sense, the so-called emotions, so-called the reactions against, against people. So you can see it's in the official records of, of the election. Um, so uh, that's why I, um, my, my question about progress of humankind, Absolutely. Uh, I, I, I challenge that. Absolutely. I challenge that. We had the civil rights movement, we had everything. We have a black president, we have every possible sign of progress. But there's something deep in the human psyche going back in terms of the values as soon as we release the, 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 the devils of, of our hearts, own psyche. Absolutely. There's I, I have a, a, a question, a lighter yes. question for, for Steve. Steve. Uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, my most admired literary figure, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's not the matter, um, once said that when he discovered that he could write his uh, novels in a computer, his work was incredibly improved. He could say, I could change everything instantly. I didn't have to rewrite to scratch. 
you think that Shakespeare would have felt the same thing? <laughs> Interesting question. I, I think that, that uh, yes, it's possible. Because I think that I, wh what immediately think is that uh, it goes against, of course, what what the myth about Shakespeare was, that the Shakespeare's original editors said that they received from him scarcely a blot in his papers. That's to say mm. that he never corrected. Mm. But everything that, that Shakespeare's scholarship has said over the last generation is that he seems to have revised more or less constantly, uh -huh. uh, possibly for commercial World purposes. processing. Uh, <laughs> so I think it would have been quite a bit easier the, the, for him to do so, as I think it would have been easier for him to, to cut and paste huge chunks of things from his sources, which he also liked to do, uh, <laughs> because he, uh, uh, he never, uh, he rarely made up something from scratch. He always moved things around from, from sources. So I do think that he Great. would have uh, enjoyed it uh, and probably used it. I think that the, um, the interesting question for me is what the effect of the internet would have been on his, exactly. uh, his extraordinary capacities for language and for, for exactly. entering That's into characters. Uh, so that, yeah. um, I don't know actually, I don't, because I'm not quite clear now what its effect is. I do all of my writing, as I'm sure you do all of your writing in, on the internet, I'm in, I'm in on the word processor. Um, it, and I've lost even, like my students, I feel my hand being exhausted after a while if I'm actually forced to write for any length of time. Uh, but I think the old technology did do certain things for you and probably did certain things for Shakespeare, including slow you down uh, mm. at crucial mm. moments. I agree. Uh, and I don't, I don't know what it would have meant for him to give that up. I agree. And you see, there is no real study on this topic, which for me is fundamental for creativity. No real study about the differential creativity, productivity, etc., in writing by hand, um, works of fiction, or writing by computer. I, I try to push some students to do that, but I, I think that that could be a great yeah, study absolutely. to do. Uh, but you would need experimental subjects and difficult to find because no one wants to write on, in hand. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Not at all. It's a, a wonderful. Stephen, do you have any questions? That you're no, no, I'm, I'm good. Well, okay. Let's go. Okay. All right. So, Professor Castells, there is some evidence that the very act of pointing out that something is a lie actually propagates the lie, as you said. How can we counter this? How can you, we can say that it's a lie? No, how can you counter the fact? If we comment on Trump's ridiculous tweets, yeah. right, they prop, it propagates, the, yeah. the, right? So how can we counter this? Count. How can we not, how can we oppose, oppose it? Oh, how, can how can we, can we end we this? Uh, first of all, by not retweeting. Not retweeting. <laughs> no retweeting. That, that, that's the main thing because we constantly even make a joke and say, ah, you see what he said today? I mean, actually, his presidential campaign, the, particularly the, the primaries, was a genius of communication strategy. Because he understood the number one rule. He was doing and saying outrageous things. Outrageous. And everybody would say, aha, he can never win election by so and so. But what happened is that the media and everybody else were all the time paying attention to what he was saying and this outrageous thing. So for or against, but he was always in the media. He was always the center yeah. of the debate. And there's one rule in television, is dichotomic. You are in or you are out. Why you are in, it doesn't matter. And how are you proposing, it's like proposing that you not think of an elephant, if I say an elephant. How are you proposing to stop people from uh, paying attention and retweeting? I mean, in other words, how would you get people to stop such a thing? I don't understand. Well, one, one good thing is the campaign that exists but will not work about asking the, 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 the owner of Twitter, who is after all a private company, to expel Trump because there are a number of rules <laughs> that, that you, can, you have to follow and he has done all kind of indecent speeches, all kind of lights, everything. So that could be one thing. But uh, other than that, I agree with you pessimistically. 
I don't think that you can stop people from retweeting and say, hey, look at what he said now. Yeah. I have to say for myself that I think that, that uh, the ways in which uh, we're likely to take a turn in a different direction uh -huh. will be through uh, quite old-fashioned politics, um, sort, of, sort of the ordinary politics of, of interest uh, groups organizing themselves uh, sufficiently to, to, to change the course, not something magical and new, but, but something traditional and old. I absolutely agree. I, I think we're seeing a moment, I mean, it's working quite a bit on, uh, on religious extremism over the years, especially, you know, looking at militancy abroad. So often militancy is fed by a lack of a value-based society. Like, what are what are we gonna? What matters to us? And we see in the response, the the upwell of response to Trump. We see young people. It's trendy to be part of not antifa, not looking at wild, violent behavior, but looking at putting your Facebook post. You know, resist is it's yeah, trendy, and sure. so. At first, that commodification of resistance really bothered me, T-shirts and selfies and all of that. And then I thought, why is this bothering? Allow it to be. This is how people are propagating their own image of resistance. Um, and yeah, and those are, I think that's a traditional movement that will use new means to spread itself. But the social networks are full of uh, cries of opposition and slogans against Trump, etc. But my argument is by at the same time, this changes the culture of the people, but at the same time, maintains the presence mm -hmm. of Trump even negatively. However, I think this is reversing the popularity mm -hmm. uh, somewhat. Ultimately, it's still there. Okay, so we have two questions left. <clears throat> so the first is, what hopes do you see for humanistic creativity in the digital world? I see lots of hope there. I mean, the one thing I have <clears throat> didn't say uh, in uh, about both about current students, but also about art, is that uh, I think there's an explosion of fantastic work in the from the digital world. Uh, <clears throat> if you go to the uh, yeah. to the Venice Biennale, uh, let's say, you suddenly realize that That's there's fine. a transform the media have transformed, the new media have transformed yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, art, the art scene in incredibly exciting ways mm -hmm. uh, and have put all kinds of cultures together uh, in interesting communicative ways that haven't been before. And that's also true at, at locally at our university. We, I said rather, rather glumly that there's a decline of, of humanities majors, which is true at, not only at Harvard, but uh, virtually everywhere, but a huge increase of the number of people who actually want to make art mm. at universities. Yes. It, it's quite remarkable. And <laughs> that, uh, I, that's a sign of, I mean, it's not good for people like me who want to teach Coriolanus, but it's right. uh, unbelievably good right. uh, for art making and often using digital technology. So I'm actually quite Absolutely. optimistic about that. No, Art is on the rise, for sure, yeah. in education, in society, and in the markets, in the mm -hmm. financial market. Yeah. Art is incredibly <laughs> more and more valued and more expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too bad, that, okay. <coughs> All right, so it does make me think of these Syrian artists, right, for whom the network society not only <clears throat> literally saved their lives because they learned how to get out of Syria from one another online, on WhatsApp, on Facebook, but their major cultural influences and their collaborations are one another online. So although a physical geographic Syria no longer exists is open to them, that's over, Syria's over. But a virtual country, a virtual, as they say, a virtual Syria exists and flourishes. Yeah. So digital, di digital diasporas yeah. is now the term that brings together many cultures that also eventually also are movements to fight back and take back their societies. Exactly, so, exactly. In that sense, what, the one thing I can say at least about the internet networks, et cetera, et cetera, they're incredibly powerful to resist and change. Yes. At yes. the same time, because we are all in the internet, there is the largest surveillance yes. situation ever 
we, we don't have privacy, that's absolutely clear. And, uh, and therefore, uh, it's at the same time, the only, the only advantage that the powerful don't have privacy either. Anyone right. with a cell phone uploading something can catch any, any person, any personality on the spot yeah. and ruin his, her career. Yeah. Um, so now they, are, they, they have to hide. Suddenly the powerful ones are the ones who have to hide mm. from public view mm. uh, because everybody immediately knows everything. We have many, many cases. So, but the one thing that's sure is that we have much more power to fight, but at the same time, forget about privacy. Mm. It's mm. A, I've been thinking all in the back of my mind all during this conversation about Montaigne's friend, Etienne Laboisi, who wrote a work called The Against One, a contra. Mm -hmm. And he was trying to figure out how you could stop uh, tyranny from happening. And he had two uh, he th he ideas. One, he thought of some kind of, of uh, nonviolent resistance. He thought violent resistance was not wise. But if you could organize people, it's a little bit like organizing them not to tweet. If you could organize people not to, simply not to do what the tyrant asks you to do. Don't bring him his coffee in the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, don't take care of him. I mean, just, it's just one person. If you could get enough people not to do that, uh, that would bring down someone. But understanding, as I think he did, that this was unlikely to happen, uh, he, or, or that it would be difficult to happen, it would be difficult because you wouldn't be able to identify those people whom you could create a network with to agree to not provide the coffee to the tyrants. So I he said, if only to. you could create in people a window so that you could look at them and see whether they were in, in favor or opposed to tyranny, you mm. could then uh, create a world of opposition. But then he realized that would also be, the window would be available to the tyrant as well. So uh, he wasn't able to bring down uh, any tyrant in his time. Depends mm, the, mm. the, the statistical proportion between how many the tyrants would be able to catch and how many people would follow the message. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Okay, this is our last question, and uh, we are returning to the decline of the humanities. Oh. <laughs> so, Stephen Greenblatt attributed the decline of, of student interest in the humanities to, oh, it's a little lecture, so, okay, it's long. One, career concerns slash myopia. To network society reducing the time and inclination to engage in the reflection the humanities require. Three, lack of progress in humanities, works from long ago being as important and impressive as those produced today. Okay, reasons, let me, let me see if I can sum this up. Okay, reason one is applied in the 1950s. Reason one applied in the 1950s as it does today. Two, admittedly, is new. The network society is new. Um, I should have read this before I read it out loud because it's, it's going to go on and it becomes it. almost say, yeah. third, just say that the third okay, yes. thing, that I didn't attribute the, the decline of majors in the humanities to the to the fact that, there, that there's been no progress in, let's say, between the Iliad and, and uh, 100 Years of Solitude. There are two astonishing works. I think that's the strength of the humanities. That's what's magically wonderful about the humanities. So far from thinking that's a problem, I think that's the great glory of, of uh, the humanities. It, it's possibly true that in a culture that that is frantic for the, the next new thing, that it'll feel a little weird that the next new thing is Homer. Uh, but I actually think that's not a significant problem. I think that the other issues, the, the, the world of um, multitasking, constant obsessive multitasking and distraction is an issue uh, in terms of the traditional way in which we process uh, the works of art from the past, which were, were uh, predicated, I think, on focus of a kind that, that the, this new communication system tends to distribute in smaller units uh, mm -hmm. or to multiply in cognitively in, in different ways. So those things, yes, but not the, uh, con not the lack of what I was calling lack of progress, which I think is splendid. Excellent. Manuel, in closing, is there anything you'd like to well, say? Well, no, I, I simply think that 
the issue is that we cannot fix uh, in a particular time of history the expressions of human feelings and, and art and, and, and knowledge and production. I think in many cases humanities is reduced to those classical humanities. Mm. And digital humanities today could also be an art, as you said in the case of art, digital humanities is like deciding that music stopped <laughs> with classic Baroque music and that, uh, let's say, electronic music nowadays, nowadays, which has tremendous creativity, is not music. It's kind of noise, okay? Uh, so uh, that's the issue. Are we able to extrapolate the, what was the human creation to new forms of expression and communication without losing what already has been built there? That's a, a digital homer. Uh, so uh, we, we have to reproduce some of the feelings and expression in new forms of expression and communication. And I, I firmly believe that under such conditions, humanity will explode. And I can give you one example. Yeah. One example. In Finland, uh, the glory of uh, digital Finland, et cetera, et cetera, was that uh, the government made possible and all the students were going into engineering, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we have many hackers from Finland and Lindustova and everywhere. At one point, Finland became a rich country. The students were saturated with engineering and was a massive drop in engineering recruitment and everybody went into humanities. They were rich enough to do the real thing, humanities. Excellent. In other words, humanities is the superior stage of human development once we have done all this electronics and biology and everything else. Excellent. Well, on that note, thank you so much for a really fascinating conversation. My pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you.